Act Two of The Weaker Sex by Arthur Wing Pinero. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Second Act. The scene is a richly appointed anteroom at Lord Gillingham's, with a large opening leading to the drawing rooms, and showing a distant conservatory with a fountain playing. On the right is a recess, furnished with settees, palms, and candelabra, over the entrance to which is a curtain fastened back. On the left are large French windows opening into the garden, which is bright with moonlight. There is the sound of music in the distance. Mr. Wade Green is sitting in the corner with his eyes closed. He is a young man with weak eyes, spectacles and little perky whiskers. When nobody is looking at him, his countenance is most melancholy, but directly he is observed he assumes a facetious expression. Lady Liptrot, a tall, gaunt, withered woman with a deep, gruff voice and black ringlets, dressed showily but in execrable taste, and the Honourable George Liptrot, her son, an insipid, ultra-modern young gentleman, stroll in from the garden. George? Yes, ma. We'll sit about in the music room for half an hour and then go on to the Beauchamps. The Gillingham's entertainments are always so insufferably tiresome. Yes, it's awfully slow, ma. Green, hearing voices, rises, yawns wearily, shakes himself and emerges from the corner with his most humorous expression. Are ya? Are ya? Green loiters away. Lady Liptrot to George. I know that man's face. Who is he? Why, Ma, that's Wade Green, the man who's so awfully entertaining at the piano, with those frightfully amusing songs, don't you know? When he sings, it's as much as people can do to keep from laughing. <laughs> to Green. Harya. Green, stifling a yawn and turning briskly. Oh, you quite well. Thanks. Are you going to sing? Mm, a little thing of last season's. Oh, then do you go on to the Beauchamp by any chance? I shall pop in. Will you sing the? Yes, a little thing I used to do years ago. <laughs> Were you at Mrs. Fillimore's this afternoon? Yes, very enjoyable. Did you sing the? Oh, a little thing they always ask for. One of my old little things. <laughs> it will be awful fun when you do something now, won't it? As Green walks away, he meets Lord Gillingham entering. A handsome old gentleman, slightly deaf. Ah, Mr. Green. They miss you very much in there. Green, raising his voice. Just going in, just going in. He still loiters about with his hands in his pockets. Lord Gillingham, seeing Lady Liptrot. You're not going, are you? Lady Gillingham has been looking for you. There's some music in there. 
Lady Liptrot, raising her voice. What a charming night! Outside? Here! So glad! Lady Liptrot to George. That man is breaking up. Rapidly! Ah, George! George, raising his voice. Delighted! You're looking so much better. Lord Gillingham smiles and nods, but as Lady Liptrot and George go out, he gapes wearily. Green, who is sauntering about aimlessly, does the same. They turn and surprise each other at it. Green, rather embarrassed, resuming his comic manner. Ha! Mm, uh, yes, I'm, uh, I'm just going in. Just going in. He disappears quickly. A servant enters. Mr. and Mrs. Harley Hill. Mr. and Mrs. Hawley Hill, a stout couple, enter. But Lord Gillingham has his back to them and does not notice them. We can't give them long, Adelaide. Isn't that Lord Gillingham? They approach. Lord Gillingham smiling pleasantly. Oh, you are not going, are you? Lady Gillingham has been looking for you. There's some music in there. Mrs. Hawley Hill raising her voice. Just come. Eh? We've just come. Oh, how do you do? How do you do? Let us find my wife. He takes them towards the drawing rooms. Servant, announcing... Mr. Silchester. Enter Dudley Silchester. Lord Gillingham, to the hills. Ah, there she is. My My dear dear Lady Lady Gillingham. They go out. Lord Gillingham, seeing Dudley. Oh, you're not going, are you? Lady Gillingham has been looking for you. There's some music in there. Just come, how are you? Ah, how are you? Mr. Silchester, isn't it? How's Lady Gillingham? Very well. She's much better than I am at a party. I get dazed. Lady Gillingham is a wonderful woman. I was born too long ago for her. That's my great fault. Ah. Yes. They stand side by side on the hearthrug. Fine May. Very, very fine May. One of the finest Mays I remember. English Mays. I mean English Mays. May is a fine month abroad. Yes, sometimes. Ah, I mean sometimes. They turn their heads from each other and gape. Is Lister here? What Lister is that? Philip Lister, Gerald Lister's son, went away suddenly years and years ago. Don't know him. He wrote to tell me he'd be here tonight. Oh, very lightly, very lightly. There are a great many people here I don't know. 
A friend of my wife's, perhaps. Come along. Lady Gillingham, richly dressed, enters, shaking hands with Dudley. How do you do? So pleased. Surprising Lord Gillingham in the middle of a gape. Theodore, people are looking for you. You're horrid. To Dudley. He leaves everything to me. I wish he'd leave something to me. I mean, I wish I might assist you. To himself. Confound it. What a stupid thing to say. Sylvia enters with the Honourable George Liptrot. She is dressed simply but charmingly in white. She greets Dudley and then strolls with George to the recess. Ah, do you ever go to Lord's? Lord's Cricket Ground? Oh, yes. Eton and Harrow? Yes. Were you there the year before last? Yes, I was. Really? Really? Then you saw me there. I played for Eton the year before last. Oh! Isn't the world absurdly small? The idea of your being there when I was there. Both there. They sit talking. Servant, announcing. Mrs. Boyle Chewton. Miss Boyle Chewton. And Mr. Bargus. Oh, law, the political infant. Goes out quickly. Lady Gillingham, in Lord Gillingham's ear. Here are those people. Mary's friends, the strong-minded ladies, and Mr. Barges. Mrs. Boyle-Chewton, Rhoda, and Mr. Barges enter. The ladies dressed very plainly in sombre silks. How do you do? How do you do? So delighted. Introducing. Lord Gillingham. To Mrs. Boyle-Chewton. Is Mary with you? No, I left Lady Vivash deeply engaged with Madame Lisette, the dressmaker. Lord Gillingham, to Bargus. Certainly very interesting. Very interesting. My lord, it is a great question in a nutshell. The position of woman... Quite so. Yesterday's paper reported your speech very fully. Lady Liptrot re-enters and is introduced to Mrs. Boyle-Chewton. Lady Gillingham to Rhoda. There is Sylvia. Rhoda goes to Sylvia, who rises to meet her. Oh, I'm so glad. Has Mama come? No. How late she is. Do sit by me for a moment. They sit side by side. Rising, George finds Rhoda next to him instead of Sylvia. Ah, oh, I think I'll just, uh, if you don't mind, I'll look for my mother. To himself. What a dowdy girl. Lady Liptrot to George as they meet. George, look at that extraordinarily dressed person. Yes, I've just seen another. Ugh. How women can so disfigure themselves, I can't imagine. Let us retain the soft docility and gentle exterior which are heaven's gifts, or let us die. Give me some air outside. They go into the garden. We mustn't miss Bandinelli, the new violinist. Bargus bobs and bows nervously 
Lord Gillingham gallantly escorts Mrs. Boyle Chewton. Mrs. Boyle Chewton to Lord Gillingham. Why don't you become one of us? Madam, I am all yours. Join our union? Ah, I haven't thought about it. Why can't women vote? Well, they can. They tell the men how to. Why can't women sit? They can, can't they? I mean in the House of Commons. Rhoda? Yes, Mamma. Vargas and Lady Gillingham, Lord Gillingham and Mrs Boyle Chewton go into the drawing-rooms. Rhoda rises. I suppose I must go, but I hate it. Hate it? I'm not dressed very nicely. People stare so. Sylvia, putting her arm round her waist. Shall I come with you? Rhoda disengages herself, looking at Sylvia's dress and then at her own. Oh, no, please don't. Besides, you will want to get rid of me directly Mr Lee arrives. Mr Lee? Oh, Rhonda, dear, who told you? Nobody. I heard Lady Vivash telling Mamma. Sylvia, taking Rhoda's hand. Oh, I'm glad you know, for I do want to talk about him so much. He's dark, you know, and is a poet. They call him the poet of the prairies in his own country. He's an American with a soft, low voice. We've only seen each other three times in a little bit. We met in Florence. Do you think it's romantic? You can buy his poems at the railway station. They're a shilling. Look! Taking from her pocket a little volume bound in red silk. There they are. I put them in that bright cover. I did say he was dark, didn't I? Oh, aren't I telling you all about him? You are, rather. You're not cross, are you? I do hope you'll be engaged soon. Rhoda, biting her lips. Do you? Thank you. Perhaps I'm as much engaged as you appear to be. Oh, I'm so glad. Tell me who it is. Oh, do. If I choose, it is Mr. Bargus. Mr. Bargus? Oh, don't. I don't know why you should make that face. Mr. Bargus is a Member of Parliament. A Member of Parliament ranks higher than a poet. Oh, I don't think that's a nice thing to say. And Lady Gillingham has told me that there are members and members. Besides, a man isn't born a Member of Parliament. Mr. Lee was born a poet. Indeed. He had better be going back then. They're doing away with hereditary privileges in this country. Servant announcing. Mr. Lee. Oh! Ira Lee enters. He is a tall, handsome man of about thirty-seven, with a gentle, self-contained manner. Lee advancing to Sylvia with a pleasant smile. Miss Vivash? Sylvia hanging her head. Mr. Lee? Rhoda stares at Lee, and then turns to go as Bargus enters. Miss Chewton? Uh, Rhoda? Your mamma has delegated me to fetch you. Rhoda stares contemptuously at Lee and Sylvia, and, seizing Bargus's arm, goes out with him. I didn't reach London until five o'clock this afternoon. You must be very weary. Of being parted from you. 
Ah, yes. Is Lady Vivash here? Not yet. Will she be very angry? I think she will be a little angry if you stay with me now. Very well, then. I'll go and find Lady Gillingham. Taking her hand. Suppose your mother, for some reason, dislikes me exceedingly. Oh, don't, please. What is there not to like? So much. Why, look at your little hand in mine. It's like a rosebud on an old Delft plate. I have lived twice as long as you. You are a poet. You always will. Besides, I think Mama will like you for being rather old. When she married my Papa, he was three times her age. No. Was he? Didn't you know? Certainly not. You and I have never had time to talk of anything but the future. And the weather. Oh, you're not curious like women. You could have found out all about Mama, who she was, whom she married, when she married, when I was born, well, everything. You ought to be curious about me. I have read your poems. I don't want to know more than that you are sweet and gentle, with a voice that has the meaning of truth in it. But my Mama... Oh, I have imagined her. A woman with eyes like yours, only sadder. Lips like yours, only paler. A voice like yours, only deeper. A woman whose task in life it is to show her child how to grow old beautifully. Thank you. Now go and find Lady Gillingham. He raises her hand to his lips tenderly. Why shouldn't you show me the way to her? It is such a little way. Isn't there a longer way to Lady Gillingham? Oh, yes, through the garden, only it's much longer. Take me the much longer way. They walk a step or two towards the window. He stops and points to the book she still carries. May I carry that? Oh. Handing him the book, which he opens. Do you think me very silly? I think you ought to be ordered a course of sounder reading. Write your name there, please. Lee, hesitating a moment. My name? He takes a pencil from his pocket and writes his name, then shows it to her. Philip Leister? Who's that? Ira Lee. Is Philip Leister your real name? It was real to me once. I don't seem to know you now at all. Philip Leister. Ira Lee or Philip Leister. The man is the same. Taking her hand and gently drawing it through his arm. Sylvia to herself. Philip Leister. They walk to the window. The moon shines in upon them. He turns to her. You trust me, Sylvia. Philip. Raising her eyes and looking into his face. Yes. They disappear into the garden. As they go, Lady Gillingham enters quickly. Sylvia? Sylvia! Oh, where is Sylvia? As long as I live, I'll never chaperone another unmarried girl. Looking into the corner. Oh, the dreadful responsibility. Sylvia! Servant, announcing... Lady Vivash. Lady Vivash enters quickly. She is magnificently dressed. Her cheeks are bright, her eyes sparkling, 
her manner hurried and excited. Mary! Lady Vivash, kissing her upon the cheek. Victoria, dear. Oh, how beautiful you look. Beautiful? Oh, I have never looked so ugly in my whole life. <laughs> Nonsense. What will Mrs. Boyle Chewton say? What a change. Change, yes. Since yesterday. What a change since eighteen years ago. Mary, what is the matter? Come with me. Is Sylvia well? Yes, quite well. Is her American, Mr... Mr. Lee, here? No, not yet, I think. Lovers are not impatient nowadays. I... I... am ready. Suddenly Lady Vivash supports herself on Lady Gillingham's arm for a moment, then sits faintly. Mary, you are ill. No, wait. I... I have something to say to you. I didn't know that you were acquainted with Mr. Lister. Mr. Lister? Philip Lister. I have never told you, but he and I were friends years ago. Tell me, how does he look? Stop. Let me guess. Worn, with silver hair at the temples. Eyes that seem looking away, back. Pointing to the drawing room. Is he there? Shall I meet him? Don't notice us. I shall know him. I shall know him. I shall know him. Mary, I know no Mr. Lister. He is to be here in your house tonight. I have seen his letter, his own handwriting. Then he must be somebody Theodore has invited without consulting me. Let us go and ask. She goes to the drawing room. Yes. Walking straight across to the mirror and looking into it earnestly. Then and now. Then and now. Oh. She turns with a low cry and then goes out as Bargus enters with Mrs. Boyle Chewton from the window, followed by Rhoda. Bargus nervously apart to Rhoda. Go away for five minutes. Rhoda apart to him. What are you going to do? Break the news of our engagement to your dear mamma. Not here. Certainly. Your dear mamma can't be violently angry here. Rhoda goes out. You say you wish to speak to me, Mr. Bargus. Hmm. Mrs. Boyle Chewton, what I have on my... on my heart might have kept till tomorrow or next week, but it weighs heavily, and I did not sleep last night for it, so it is better out. The matter is, in a nutshell, Mrs. Boyle Chewton, I am a bachelor. You are wedded to our cause, Mr. Vargas. Politically, politically, of course, a man may be wedded to many causes. Some members are Mormons. Politically, I'm all yours. We appreciate you. Thank you. I am sure you do. But domestically, I am all my own. Now, my dear lady, my sentiments concerning this very popular emotion, about which we hear so much, called love, 
are known to you. Love reminds me of the goose at one of our little county dinners. There it is at the head of the table, rich and tempting, all eyes upon it and all mouths watering. Every plate is sent up, and the carver, like Cupid, rises to the occasion. And what is the result? Only two out of a dozen get a good cut, and before an hour is over, those two are extremely sorry for it. But, my dear lady, marriage, two persons walking soberly through life under one umbrella, cheerfully accepting the drippings of providence down the backs of their necks. That's an elevating spectacle. Really, Mr. Bargus, I don't see... A moment. It is in a nutshell. Politically, I'm already a member of your charming establishment. Politically, my slippers already nestle at your genial hearth. There's a great deal of trotting to and fro between Regent's Park and myself. Now, Mrs. Boylechuton, I put it humorously, why shouldn't you spare me the journey to the park in the morning, and from the park in the afternoon? Mr. Bargus! Take a moment, take a moment. It is so sudden. I have never suspected it. All my best friends will accuse me of husband hunting. They can't. They only say that when the lady concerned is not an extremely attractive creature. Mrs. Boyle Tewton, looking away. Oh, Mr. Bargus. They can't say that of a charming face and a most fascinating manner. Mrs. Boyle Tewton, turning to him warmly. Be quiet. I am disappointed in you. You don't need it. Lady Liptrot and George enter from the garden and cross the room. Mrs. Boyle-Tewton immediately speaks loudly with a change of manner. The question of the amelioration of the condition of woman, Mr. Bargus, is one that may well profit by the devotion of such great spirits as yourself, not to mention the modest labour. Lady Liptrot and George go out by door. Mrs. Boyle-Tewton turns again to Bargus. I have wandered from the point. Go on. With regard to Rhoda, I fancy I am not obnoxious to her. Obnoxious indeed. The event will brighten her life. I should think so. Would you care to call me Clarence? Not yet, not yet. Not to oblige me? No, no. Not to delight me? Clarence! Mr. and Mrs. Hawley Hill enter from the drawing-room, cross to the door. Mrs. Boyle-Tewton, loudly. What future may be in store for woman, it is impossible to estimate or predict. But one great fact is assured, one great fact! Mr. and Mrs. Hawley Hill disappear. Clarence, will you speak to Rhoda? Certainly, tonight. If Mr. Silchester is your escort, Rhoda and I might, <coughs> ahem, follow in a four-wheeler. I don't think that's necessary. 
Uh, no, perhaps not. Beg pardon. And I have still one condition to impose upon you. A hundred, a hundred. Mrs. Boyle Chewton, pointing to the recess. Shan't we be less liable to interruption in there? Shall we? To himself. I wish she'd let me get away to Rhoda. They sit side by side. Clarence, you will not avail yourself of our new relationship to distract my thoughts from the mighty work of woman's emancipation. Bargus, edging away nervously. My dear Mrs. Boyle-Chewton, certainly not, certainly not. Why should I? You will not allow your affection for the wife to weaken your cooperation with the agitator? Vargas, aghast, his eyes starting from his head. Not allow my affair, my affair, I beg your pardon? You know what I hint at. You won't take me away for our honeymoon till Parliament has risen. Mrs. Boyle Tutin. Dudley and Rhoda come from the drawing room together. Hush! Don't kneel. Rising and looking round the corner. Dudley! Oh, are you there, Edith? Yes! She approaches them, trying to conceal Bargus, who sinks back. Bargus, to himself, with horror. I see it. It's all in a nutshell. The mother has taken it to herself. Oh, I've gone into the wrong lobby. Mrs. Ball Chewton, pointing to the recess. I think Mr. Bargus is there. Is he? To himself. Oh, yes. There's the infant. Bargus advances falteringly. How do you do? Bargus nods but cannot speak. Dudley, dear. Rhoda, we three are of one family. I, I think Mr. Bargus has something to tell you. Indeed. Something I hope most interesting to Rhoda, my child. Oh, Mamma. Already united to us by ties of sympathy, Mr. Bargus asks that he may be allowed to add one more link to the chain by becoming Rhoda's father. Rhoda, clenching her hands. Oh, good gracious. He turns and looks at Rhoda in blank amazement. Bargus, to Mrs. Borchewton. He doesn't like it. Oh, I can see he doesn't like it. Shall we, for the present, uh, that is, temporarily, you know, a year or two, uh, yield to him? Doesn't like it? When did I receive sympathy from my brother Dudley? Mr. Bargus, we will take the air before returning to the heated rooms. Your arm. Rhoda, please follow. She takes Bargus's arm and leads him across to the window. As he passes Rhoda, he gives her a piteous look. His mouth moves without any sound, and he shakes his head violently. She turns from him contemptuously. The three disappear into the garden, leaving Dudley with his hands in his pockets, transfixed. Good gracious! The infant has grown out of all knowledge. Confound it! Edith ought to have known better. I'll go to the club and drop a line to Bargus. If the babe doesn't listen to reason, I'll choke him with his own coral. A servant enters. 
Here is Mr. Silchester, my lady. Eh? Lady Vivash enters. Her manner is now quite composed, but her step is heavy and slow, and her face pale. Mr. Silchester. Lady Vivash. Will you find Sylvia for me? I think she must be in the garden. Her young American must pay the penalty of being late. I am going to take his sweetheart home. She'll be a little disappointed. Lady Vivash, to herself. She knows her lover will call tomorrow. Disappointed. I could teach her what that means. Sinking wearily into a chair. You look very tired. The rooms are hot, or cold, or something. Find Sylvia and let me go. The servant has drawn the curtains over the window and retired. Dudley is going into the garden. Lady Vivash, calling. Dudley, isn't it curious about no Mr. Lister? It is quite a mystery. You saw his letter? I didn't scrutinise it. I suppose it was his handwriting. I suppose so. I have it with me. Taking the letter from his pocket and reading... Next Wednesday night at a party at Lord Gillingham's. They don't know him. Do you recognise the writing? Lend me the letter. I'll glance at it when I get home, if I have time. Certainly. Giving her the letter, her hand trembling as she takes it. I shall call at his hotel tomorrow. You... you are not looking for Sylvia. I beg your pardon. He goes out through the curtains into the garden. Lady Vivash, looking at the letter. The handwriting? Know it. Oh, Philip, you taught it to me too well years ago. At Lord Gillingham's. He must have written that name for some other. I'll find out tomorrow. Early tomorrow. She folds the letter, looks round, then touches her lips with the paper and slips it into her bodice. Where is Sylvia? Why doesn't she come? I can't endure this place now. She crosses to the curtains and holds them open, looking up. How bright! It was moonlight when I sent him away from me. What a mockery it is tonight. She goes through the curtains as Lady Gillingham enters with Ira Lee. At the same moment, the servant crosses the room. Lady Gillingham, to the servant. Lady Vivish has not gone, Spencer. I believe not, my lady. The servant goes out. Lady Gillingham, to Lee. I am sure Lady Vivish is most anxious to see you. She must be in the rooms. Wait here. I'll find her and bring her to you. You are very kind to me, Lady Gillingham. I am afraid I am. Oh, Mr Lee... Lovers are too troublesome. Lee, taking her hand and bending over it. Ah, Lady Gillingham, women are too beautiful. Lady Gillingham smiles and goes out. Wait here, wait here, to be approved of, or otherwise. To have every grey hair in my head counted, every furrow in my face measured, every pound in the bank weighed. After all... A man on the right side of forty isn't so very old. Not so very old. I am only old for Sylvia. Ah, 
If they don't inspect me quickly, I shall be an octogenarian. His foot touches a little plain gold bracelet, which is lying upon a tiger skin before the fireplace. What's that? Picking it up carelessly. A bracelet. He is about to place it on the mantelpiece when he catches sight of an inscription upon it. Great heaven. Reading the inscription. Philip Leicester to Mary Norbury, for ever and ever. The curtains are pushed aside, and Lady Vivash enters, clasping her wrist. My bracelet! I have lost my bracelet! He rises. They come face to face. <gasps> Mr. Lister. Lee, quietly handing the bracelet. Are you looking for this? I found it on the ground there. Lady Vivash, taking the bracelet from him and trying to command herself. Thank you. Mr. Silchester mentioned to me that you were thinking of returning to England after rather a long absence. Offering her hand. How do you do? He takes her hand respectfully and bows without speaking. I did ask about you early in the evening when I first came, but poor Lord Gillingham was more than usually oblivious. He is much changed. We are all very, very much changed. Naturally. I think I should have known you anywhere. You wouldn't, of course, have recognized me if I... if I had not... if... Oh, yes, don't mistake me. I should indeed. Their eyes meet. She hangs her head and moves a step or two from him. Old friends ought to feel interested in one another. Have you prospered abroad? Are you unmarried? Yes, I am unmarried. Oh! Yes, old friends ought to feel interested in one another. Pardon me, have you prospered at home? Are you unmarried? Don't you know? Know what? Of my marriage after you left England. No. How soon after I left England? Oh, Philip, don't think more hardly of me than you can help. I was mad. I didn't know what I was doing. Heaven pitied me and gave me strength to do my duty. But you, a man, can't think leniently. I know. I know. She covers her eyes with her hands. He turns from her respectfully. The curtains move, and Rhoda is about to enter. Seeing Lady Vivash, she stops quickly and draws back, listening, closing the curtains carefully. Lee, after a pause. You have not told me how soon after I left England. I can't. I daren't. If you had come back, it would have been different. Why didn't you come back? Why? <laughs> because I was a foolish, sentimental lad with an ideal which you had shattered. Because I was smarting under the charges of unfaithfulness you had brought against me. False charges. They were false, and I knew it. I tortured you with doubts and accusations for the sake of hearing you tell me how deeply you loved me. I quarreled for the luxury of reconciliation, stabbed for the sake of healing, and you couldn't comprehend a woman's nature. No, 
because I forgot that it was the patrician ladies who cried habite loudest at the Roman circus. I discovered that you were meant to torture me in play, and I left you from that moment never to glance back. I made a new man of myself, shunning all chances of hearing of you or reading of you, never letting myself even wonder about you. I was unmanly, you say. Well, men have their excuses even for that, if women are unwomanly. But now we are older, wiser. Now? Oh, it can't matter to either of us now. Not matter? Philip, you don't know me. Listen, you must. If you wish it, you shall never see me again after tonight. Tonight, the crossroad of our later life. But hear me before we part. While you were shutting your heart upon me in some faraway spot, my heart was bleeding for you, my eyes ever looking, my ears ever listening for you. Hush. I shock you, a married woman. Yes, but one cruelly treated by her husband. A generous husband might have taught me to forget. As it was... My love for you was the light I burned to keep me from stumbling. A little child came. To hush it to sleep, I cried by its cradle the story of my love for you. I prayed for you night and morning. Perhaps my prayers have kept you out of danger. Hush, Mary. What have I said? Lee, taking her hand firmly. You have said rightly. This is the crossroad of our lives, and we part. Goodbye. Oh! It must be. Because, Mary, both of us are not free. Not free? Not free? Oh, I haven't told you. Philip, yes, I was married. Wretchedly married. But now it is past. I am... I am alone again. Oh! She totters towards him. He recoils. Mary. Lord and Lady Gillingham enter with Sylvia, who runs down with a glad cry. Sylvia! Oh, I am so glad. Glad? Then you know each other. No, whom? Mama, dear. Pointing to Lee. Mr. Ira Lee. Lee staggers back with a cry. Lady Vivash stands for a moment as if turned to stone. Then Dudley, who has entered from the garden, comes quickly to her and catches her as she is falling. Rhoda, Mrs. Borchewton and Mr. Bargus appear in the window as the curtain descends. End of Act Two